HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Josh Green. We'll talk to Josh about 2023, the year in wine, through the lens of wines Josh has selected. We'll be tasting wines throughout the show, which will be our weekly wine sip on steroids in a way. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Josh Green is the longtime editor, publisher, and owner of Wine and Spirits magazine. Josh also serves as its critic for Napa Valley, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, Portugal, Rioja, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. He has also traveled extensively, and after this show, he's on his way to Vienna. He's traveled extensively to Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, Portugal, Italy, Spain, Australia, New Zealand, Chile, and throughout the U.S. You can also find feature stories and commentary by Josh in each issue. Josh Green is always generous with his time and is appearing for the seventh year on The Grape Nation for our 2023 The Year in Wine. Josh, no one else has ever been on The Grape Nation seven times. Awesome. It's great to be here, Sam. Not even Pascaline Lapeltier. Well, who, yeah, you I'm know, honored. I'm um, honored. I'm always happy to have you here. And um, 
I, I look forward to this show and as much in planning it and talking about it as the actual show. Um, so I mentioned in the intro, this is our seventh uh, year of Josh and I doing this. I started the show, I think, in 2016 in September. And I met Josh through Laura Catena at a Catena wine tasting. Laura introduced me to Josh. And, you know, I just started the podcast. And on a whim, I said, Josh, I'm doing this podcast. You know, would you come on? And he was able to come on in December. And based on what he does, you know, here's a perfect guy to talk about wine and then even look back at the year. So it's been a great thing. Um, I really enjoy it, Sam. So I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. So what we're doing is, you know, we started doing this. You know, Josh would come on and we'd talk urine and subjects. But in the past few years, and this was at Josh's prompting, um, he said, let me bring in some wines that I think have stories and relate to what's been going on that year or in wine. Um, So we've been doing this by him selecting wines and discussing the wines, the makers, the regions, and the stories behind them. Um, so for me, and I was telling this to Josh off air, it's an unusual show for me because generally I'll select the guests, I'll select all the questions, I'll lead through them. Today, you know, I selected Josh, but Josh selected all the wines. Um, Josh will lead the discussion um, and we will taste the wines as we do that. Um, so that's the setup. Before we taste the wines, um, are there any storylines or anything from the past year? of significance, you know, that got a proper amount of ink or was written about over and over? Well, I feel like the storyline for this year and for the last few years has been um, climate change and vineyards. And that's what we've been covering so much of. And like our latest issue has three stories about effects of climate change and and how people are battling climate change in vineyards. Um, So that seems to be the ongoing challenge is to find ways of making wine sustainable as you know in places where it's been sustained for centuries right now it's being threatened so so i knew you were going to say that and it makes total sense if you've been covering that for years i guess evolution is a bad thing with climate change but how has the coverage changed is it everywhere now or it always was everywhere and you need to talk about it everywhere? Are people more specific in, you know, what they're doing? Our coverage has been more based on our observation of what's going on and what interests us and what we think are interesting solutions that people have had. Um, Corey Warren, who is our tastings editor, he went over to Chablis this summer and it was super hot there. And yet they were having trouble with frost in the spring. So um, he um, did some research with the Moors who have a vineyard in Vodave, the Premier Cru Vodave, that they had done um, some planting, replanting of a portion of the vineyard with with high trellis, like a, a, um, a pergola to keep the buds away from the cold air that descends in a frost. You know, the, the most dangerous place in frost time is close to the ground. Um, so they created this pergola system and they're beginning to see good results from it. And it's one of the ways that people are dealing with, you know, replanting their vineyards in a way that will be sustainable 
in the 10 years or 20 years to come, who knows what's after that. Right. But um, that, that they can continue to make great wine in the place where they've been making great wine before. Is that pergola system typical height or is it higher? Because a lot of winemakers are going vertical, you know, mm -hmm. they're going higher. Yeah, this is higher than more, than vines than normally would normally be, would. but per, it's not higher than pergolas normally would be. I mean, if you, if you go to, um, if you go to Rias Baixas, where they grow a lot of Alborino, a lot of the 100 year and 150 year old vines are in pergolas and they're very, they're very tall. Um, you have to get up on a ladder to pick them. And um, that's what I was thinking. Of. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um it's a way it's a way to manage vineyards in a different kind of climate than people are used to. I had uh, Jean Baptiste Le Calion only a few weeks ago on, mm -hmm. and he's talking about more for Rotor, he's going to do more vertical. Mm -hmm. You know, interesting. Yeah. So he started doing that, and we'll he's see. a really brilliant grower. So it'll be interesting yeah, to see what he's, he's very what his much is, in yeah. tune and touch to the land and the cellar mm -hmm. and all that. I give him that for all the innovation. Um, anything. Besides climate change, and I don't diminish by saying besides, I mean, to, I, I, I think that because we are focused on vineyards, that's been the story that we can't escape. Um, there, you know, there's certainly a lot of continuing consolidation. Um, I think that the, you know, if you look at the consolidation, it's a lot of it's being driven by climate change. You know, people like, um, like Larry Stone having to sell his vineyard because he didn't get a crop one year because of the climate. Um, and so it went to Constellation. Um, so a big company buys a little tiny company. And there's a lot of that going on. So that's interesting because that's a good example. So Larry, in a sense, was forced to make a decision for survival based on the crap nature threw at him. Yeah. You know, by that the only way I want to survive and could survive is to either, you know, sell or consolidate with somebody. It's a very um, financially intensive business because you have lots of stock. So if you get really bashed by a, vin by a vintage and you don't have any wine to sell, you're screwed. If you're, if you're a small producer, you're, right. you're, you're completely screwed. And it's not something that used to happen often. Now it's happening more often. Yeah. I I spoke to Dan Petrosky from Massacon, mm -hmm. which he's really taking on his own project. Yes. And it's really him and maybe a couple of helpers. And he's so close to what you're talking about. I mean, he knows how much output he has. He knows where he's getting his wine. Any change in that, you know, could screw everything up. And it's a tough situation. There's so. not a lot of breathing room, especially, no. you know, the pandemic came along and, and really messed up small business. So there's not a lot of breathing room for people. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully as we come out of it, we'll figure out how to deal with climate change and it'll help these guys. Um, all right. So let's get into the wines. Sure. We have four wines in front of us and we're going to taste and discuss each wine and, you know, the reason Josh picked these, the story behind them. Um, just to set up and then we'll get more specific. We have a wine from the Itata region of Chile, um, a Pais, interesting area. I'm excited to hear Josh talk about it. Um, we have two wines from the Alentejo region of Portugal, um, which when people think of Portugal, 
Um, they're not thinking as much Alentejo as they should, and we're going to talk about that. Both Josh and I are huge Portugal wine fans, so that'll be great, and this will be interesting to you. And then he found an interesting project um, in Sonoma, um, the varietal and you know what they're doing, so we'll talk about that. All right, so let's get started. So, Josh, the first wine we're going to taste and talk about um, is the... Ana Maria Cumcie. Yes. Um, it's a país from Itata. 2021 Itata Aguia País. Um, just a little background. You gave this wine 94 points. It's about 30 bucks. Um, let's talk about Itata in Chile. People know they've drank wines from Chile. Itata may not be on everyone's tip. Um, People don't know about it for any number of reasons. One is that um, Pais is Mission, um, is, is similar to Mission or the same grape as Mission. And in, in Mission in California does not produce, does not tend to produce any great wines. Um, it happens to produce great wines in Chile, but it was used as a bulk to bulk up a lot of the wines that were like from Bordeaux varieties in the Central Valley and in the Alto Maipo for years. So it, it was always considered what people drank. You know, it was, it was the peasant wine that people drank. And I've just com completely come to love these wines. I've started going down there maybe 10 years ago now to, to Itata. And at the time, very few journalists outside of Chile were going down there at all. Um, it was considered pretty much trash wine, but the there were there were growers who had discovered it. Um, there were there were winemakers, and especially Louis Antoine, Louis, um, a Frenchman, had discovered this area and was really promoting it. So um, it's a very beautiful rolling hill, you know, rolling hills, um, a lot of granite, a lot of volcanic soils. Um, they, they have something called Trumau, which is this kind of light, airy, puffy volcanic soil. Um, and when the Jesuits came um, in, when when the when the conquistadors came and they brought um, priests over, the priests brought vineyard brought vines with them, and people think that it might be um, related to some vines, some vineyards in the Canary Islands, because that's where people would stop off on their way. Um, but these wines were ignored. And so because the vineyards were ignored, they're really, really ancient. So this wine is from, they say, vineyards planted in around 1800. And a lot of, when you, when you go to these vineyards, a lot of them, the root systems are 200 years old or, or older. Um, and it's fascinating to see this kind of viticulture because it's just this, this, this bed of, of vines. You know, it's not really farmed in a in any specific way it does, it's, does it almost look they're, like they're, bushes they 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 almost look like bushes but they're more random than bushes right. because they're just they're coming out of the ground all over the place and um you know there's a there's a um, wine called pais salvaje that um bouchon makes in in maule which is a little bit further north that they grow on the in the forest edge at the edge of the vineyard and and the vines grow up into the hill, into the into the trees, and they pick them from the tree. They pick Jeez. the grapes from the trees, and it's beautiful wine. Um, so this wine, I, I'm still tasting it. I taste I tasted it when I opened it to pour it um, to see if it was corked, and it's not corked at all. Um, this wine just has the longest fragrant 
um, character that you, I, I, I love this wine. It's delicate. Um, people who enjoy Pinot Noir, I think would fall in love with these wines because structurally they are sort of somewhere between Pinot Noir and Nebbiolo. They have the tannins are a little bit harder, but not aggressive. And, um, and the fruit is very red and very pretty and it's very fragrant. So, um, so color wise, similar it's to transparent. Yeah. Barolo and Pinot, maybe mm-hmm. a teeny bit more transparent. Mm-hmm. Mouthfeel is similar. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not lighter or heavier. It's, it's got a similar, you know, mouthfeel, um, on the nose, you're getting mostly red fruits, red fruits and flowers, flowers. Right. I mean, that, for me, floral. it's, it's not a kind of aggressive floral character, but it's a grape. You know, grape skins have a lot of floral character to them, and they um, they create esters as they ferment. Um, and this has a lot of that kind of um, estery floral character to it. It's it's pretty well integrated too. I think it's beautifully integrated. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so she just she just took a job actually at Carmen in the in the Alto Maipo and Alto um, Hachuel. Um, Carmen's part of the Santa Rita group. And um, she's now their chief winemaker up there. Um, but she's also continuing this project. And she has about four or five growers that she works with. And she makes the wine at Laborinto, which is um, Rafael Tirado's um, place in, I guess it's in the hills above um, above Maule. Um, and she's making really beautiful wines. But there, there are others. I, I had wanted to bring some wine by um, Felipe Ramirez, who is making a wine called Dominio de Cuarzo. And that wine, he's he's from Chile, but he's now making wine at Rosanaro in Oregon. So he makes this very right. sophisticated Pinot Noir. You and I tasted a yeah. Rosanaro either year. last year yeah. or the year mm-hmm. before. So that's his wine in Oregon. He's making that wine for that company, but this is his own wine. And it was down visiting him this past year, um, as well as um, Pedro Parra. He's a protege or friend of... Para, right? Yeah, exactly. They have a they're, relationship. Well, they, their wineries are next door to each other on the same, they're on the same basically driveway, the same basic driveway. Um, and they are both using these vineyards that are, you know, when you, when you go to a place like this and you see these old vineyards that they've chosen, you know, because Pedro really knows his vineyards well. And Felipe's no slouch. Felipe's really brilliant. Um, and they found what they consider the Grand Cru of this area in Guaralihue. Right. Um, and the wines are magnificent. Both the wines that, that Pedro's making and the wines that Felipe's making, I think, are completely magnificent. And Felipe's making a Senso from one area and a Pais from another area. And they're both beautiful vineyards. Um, um, it's, so quality, we know, is there. Value is... I think the value is astonishing right. for, what, for what you're getting. Um, I'm actually... My friend and I have both decided that we want to buy a couple of cases of these wines just to have, because I mean, I've got tons of wine around. I don't need to buy any wine. Right. It's stupid of me to buy wine. I love drinking these wines so much and they're so crazy priced. You know, and I, I always think about when I was getting into this business and I could buy Rumier for $25 a bottle and I am pissed at myself for not having bought cases of it at the time. 
Um, Even a 2000 Mouton Rothschild in the gold bottle. Yeah. That was I 23 would, years ago when yeah. things were, you know, we didn't do it. We didn't do it. But I would I would have bought that as a collectible. I wouldn't have bought it to drink. I would have bought the, the Chambol as a wine to drink. Right. I would buy these, these as wine to drink and they're, in, they're, they're affordable to me in a way that wines that I love to drink are not. Are these ageable wines? I in, don't know. But- Fair, and I probably agree with that answer without knowing anything, but they there would be no detriment to maybe holding them a year or two and trying them. No, I think for a year they'll definitely improve. Yeah. Whether they'll improve for 20 years, I right. don't know. That's not what these that's I I, I I don't think these ones are being made with that intention. I don't either. It's more of a you know And I think I like them better because they're not being made with that intention. Do these wines scream for for a little chilling or not necessarily? Or that's a I think personal that preference? If, if you serve them cellar temperature, it's fine. I don't okay. think they need to be cold. Right. Um, I think, in fact, the fragrance, I love the fragrance of these wines. So if, if, you, if you chill them, they're going to be less fragrant. So Itata has male and is... is... So Ita there's, a, there's a city down there called Concepcion, which is an incredible place to go for fish. If you love fish... It's a major city. It's a, it's a major city in, in, in Chile. And if you love fish, this is like heaven for you. You can go to um, restaurants that do sushi that's insanely great. And a lot of it's really inexpensive for the quality of what you're getting. It's, but chef-driven, like thoughtfully You prepared. can get very thoughtfully driven. I mean, it's not, it's not fancy. Right. But very thoughtful. And um, so Concepcion's on the coast. If you drive straight inland, you get to Itata. If you go a little bit north, you get to Maule. Okay. Um, and this is all considered the Secano interior, which is the dry interior of the coastal mountains. Um, so my understanding is it's about 60, 70 miles north to south, I read somewhere. Does that sound right? Or it Possibly. seems bigger. Possibly. It's, it's all, I mean. Is it the central, centralish part of the country? I think that. Towards Santi the central I think, west? I think Santiago is considered the center. Okay. So everything that you, when you go north of Santiago, you begin to get into desert. You get to Ancacagua first, and then beyond that, you get to La Serena, and you get into desert beyond that, and it's all desert above that. And then below Santiago, you've got the Central Valley down to Maule. That's all considered Central Valley. And um, below Maule is considered the South. Got it. Got it. Um, and in the areas we talked about, climate, soils, do they vary much or they're pretty much in the Itata region? They do vary. Um, and, you know, if you're close to the coast, you're getting a lot more rain. Um, if you're inland, you're getting much, it's much drier and depends on where you are in, in, um, and, you know, in relation to the coast and, and the mountains there. But also, um, the soils, as I said, were, there's a lot of granite. Um, I believe there's some schist, but there's also this trumau, which I think is, you know, I went is to that on the top. Um, it's on the surface definitely, but it's very deep. It so, is. um, there was a vineyard that I went to, um, just just straight west of of um, Concepcion, that they had rabbit warrens all through their vineyard because the vineyard the uh, the soil was so fluffy the rabbits just went all the way down like six feet seven feet down geez. into these warrens. That's that's interesting. So, Inatada, Pais, and and uh, Senso Senso are famous, but or prominent there. Mm -hmm. 
are they starting to plant other things? Well, they have other things planted. So Sunsil came in as a um, as a grape to to enrich the Pais in I think in the early 20th century. Um, but people, I, I tasted a um, a Cabernet from Ranquil um, last week. There was a Chilean event here in the in the city, and um, Morande is making a Cabernet from this from part of Itata. That the vines are, I think, 100 years old. Wow. And it was beautiful wine. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious to taste it. And there's, there's also Semillon down there. There's, um, there. there's a lot of different varieties down there, but Pais is really, when you look at these ancient vines, that's what you're seeing mostly is Pais. So that is the Ana Marie Cumcier 2021 Itada Aguilla Pais. Mm -hmm. um, it's beautiful. Um, you know, Josh originally wanted to even do, you know, some comparisons to makers with Pais and Cinzo, Domaine del Cuarzo, which you mentioned, mm -hmm. is Felipe Ramirez um, and some other wines. All right. So let's move along. Um, and I would say that um, I was frustrated in terms of trying to get the wines here. Yeah, so we I, talked I about that. I, I, I asked about your how intentions to, were yeah. set, and the reality of what you can get is a whole different story. Yeah, I mean, I was I was going to bring. Basically, I was down in Uruguay this spring, and then went to Chile, and I tried to bring some Uruguay wines. And the three wines I tried to bring from Uruguay, they're not being imported now. They were being imported now; they're not being imported. So supply issues are huge right now, especially for small production wines like this that are. Um, that don't have a lot of distribution. So um, it's really, I, I couldn't even get them from the, from to my office in time for, for this. And that usually what, any, any of these other wines you can get immediately. What so. was interesting to me is when I saw Uruguay, I had traveled to Uruguay um, and obviously you drink a lot of Tanat mm -hmm. and you go to some really small producers and some of the bigger ones and some of the bigger ones. So like, they're like Opus, these wines, mm -hmm. um, but it was interesting for me to see that you selected an orange wine from Uruguay. It's yeah, Santiago Decas is making these um, wines, Bizarro um, Extravaganza. Bizarro Extravaganza, they've got these crazy labels. He's got an Amphora Tanat, and he's got a um, orange wine that's, I think, very beautiful. And I'm not a big fan of, of most orange wines. They're a little too natty for me. But I think that wine is gorgeous, um, but it's not available in the States anymore. That's so it's really, it, there's, there's um, these experimental wines from countries that don't have the traction yet. You, know, you can get orange wines from Italy very easily because Italian wines have a presence here. They have a restaurant, um, a body of restaurants that will sell them. But they which, also have some prominent makers, oh, Radican yeah. and Gravner and all yeah. those guys. Yeah. But Decas is a prominent maker in, in Uruguay. Yeah. Um, he's not a small producer. And they they've they've got financing behind them, and I was just I was just disappointed that that wine or their I I, I tried to get the barrelless Tanat from um, from another producer and I couldn't get that. That's not available anymore. So is the story that they're having trouble getting importers? You know, no, I think it's I think it's a traction issue. I think that it's um, this market as I said before, is, is really more and more dominated by big companies. You know, it's, it's a consolidation issue. And when you have small producers, small, small artisan producers making wines in a foreign country that doesn't have a lot of presence in this market, it's a lot of work to get those wines distributed. So, you know, wine like this, it, a wine like this wine from Ana Maria 
is it's got a good distributor, but whether you can actually get the wine because whether they're actually doing anything with right. it is another question. Right. So there is distribution. It's a yeah. matter of what they're doing with it. Distribution is really <clears throat> expensive and it's harder yeah. and harder right now. Um, you know, another interesting thing was I had Isabelle Leger on, on from Raw Wine. Sure. She has spent a significant amount of time in Chile mm-hmm. and in Malé and those areas. And she has a lot of those wineries on board and they're yeah. at the Raw Wine Festivals. And she's been a champion for them. And mm-hmm. she understands what you said. I mean, you know, they're at the beginning of trying to, you know, get the visibility they deserve. They need to be introduced to people. Yeah. And I think that there, there's such a great restaurant opportunity. There's such beautiful wines with food that- I think Psalms are getting lazy. No, I think Psalms are into them. I, I know, no, I, I, I see more Pais on wine lists than I've ever seen before. So it's, um, I, I mean, I think that, I think there are a lot of new Psalms and they have a different attitude about their, their job, but, I don't, I, I don't think that it's a matter of them being lazy. I think I see, I see a lot more pice on, on my list now than I ever did Glad before. Glad to hear that. I think they're getting lazy and other stuff, but that's okay. a different story. Okay. All right. We're going to move. At, can we shut the uh, lid on? Uh, sure. All right. So that was great. Um, thank you for discussing and introducing um, our listeners to uh, Chile and Itata. I think you're right. I think there's a lot of great wines and great values. So Itata, I-T-A-T-A from Chile, look out for that. We're going to move along to another interesting region. Um, we're going to jump to Portugal. Um, Portugal is known for their ports. They're known for their uh, Douro Valley wines. Um, their whites. Um, but we're going to talk about an area, a region of Portugal called Alentejo. Um, and Josh, when you look at the map of Portugal, where's Alentejo? So it's directly east of Lisbon. Okay. And it's about one third of the country. And it's very a very diverse region. We're really looking at wines from the north. Okay. Um, this, is, this is about this wine grape that has found its home in Alentejo. Um, Alicante Boucher. You get Alicante Boucher. It was developed in France as a cross. And um, you get it in a lot of the mixed blacks in California, the Zinfandel mixed, the Zinfandel blends, old vines there. But it came to Portugal around 1870 or so. The French brought it there. And the, this family, the Reynolds family, which had been a um, cork producer, they had cork forests and made a lot of money in, in the cork business. Um, they planted Alicante Boucher and um, they were involved in Mouchao, which we have this wine here from Mouchao, which is their home estate. They also had a, um, a vineyard at Carmo, Kinder de Carmo, which was the king's palace that he'd bought for his courtesan, <laughs> um, Donna Maria. And that wine was made actually as a... Um, it was made as Kinder Carmo in the 80s and became kind of legendary from because it was from about 120-year-old vines. Um, and Julian ba- um, Julio Bastos was the guy who was making it because he was descended from John. He, w- he was related to John Reynolds and Isabel Bastos, who lived in this palace and, and farmed Alcampuche there. Um, so there's the Bastos family that, 
that does a lot with a la Campuchet. Um, and they still have that particular, they still have that palace and they have vineyards around it. There's the um, the Reynolds family at Mushao that makes this beautiful wine. And then the Symington family, which is known as the biggest producer of, the biggest vineyard owner in port wine. Um, they, this was their first project outside of the Douro. They bought a vineyard there called Quinta de Fonsoto. When? Uh, um, 2017. Okay, so it's fairly young. It's a, well, the vineyard was not young, but their no, project, the project their, is young. Yeah. Their foray into it started. And this, this, well, I brought this set of wines because this is their first a la Campuchet, and I think it's their best wine that they've produced out of this vineyard yet. Um, and so this is from a very interesting region, actually. It's called Porto Alegre. It's in the hills. So the hills are basically up to around 2,000 feet where the vineyards are, some go up to 2,300 feet. And then you get into the highest peak there is around 3,300 feet, um, but there are no vineyards that high. But it's these very beautiful, it's a very beautiful natural park where you have vineyards all up into the hills. Wow. And they have vineyards there that they've gotten very excited about. And they're very excited about this particular um, grape there. So um, I wanted to taste these two wines with you okay? because they're very different expressions, but both very beautiful expressions of this grape. Two questions. The first one is in Alentejo, how much, how many vineyards are, what am I trying to say? How many hectares, acres, whatever, are planted to Alicampuche? Is it a, is it a small amount or it's, it's starting to creep up? I don't know the exact number. Um, I actually, I got that number this morning. Um, it's in my email, um, but I don't have it up on in front Do of me. Do you have a feel that it's, it, it's not one of the major plantings, is it? It's, it's not one of the major plantings. I think that you would have much more Aragonese, much more Trincadera. Right. Um, you have a lot of white grapes that are being grown, but it's mainly 70% of the, of the vineyards are, are devoted to red grapes. Um, so, all right. So that was the first question. Mm -hmm. The second question is, which wine should we taste first? I think we should taste the Symington wine first. Okay. Let's give it a pour. I'm going to stand up and tell everyone a little about Symington. So Charles Symington makes this wine with a group of people that he has on, on his team. And um, this is their project. Um, they've been doing a lot of table wines in the Douro. And as a British family... Some of the British families resisted table wine production. Some are getting into it heavily, like the Symingtons. Um, and so they 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 did a project with Bruno Prats in the in the Douro called Prats and Symington. Prats is from France. Prats is from France. Prats used to own Coast d'Esternel. Right. Um, Storied vineyard. Yeah, and a very brilliant man. Um, and he came and tried to figure out how to make a great red wine in, in the Dora Valley. So they learned a lot working with Bruno Pratz on about table wines because they have a long, long history of port wines. Um, this is their project on their own in, um, in a very different kind of region. Um, there's good, there's good water here as opposed to most other parts of good, good rain amounts here as opposed to most other parts of the region of Alentejo, which is very dry and hot. Um, here you've got, a mountain range, so you've got some Atlantic influence coming over for the mountain range in the north, and then um, you've also got some of that continental influence coming up from the south. Um, so it's a it's a very different kind of environment than they're used to. Um, this grape is a red red fruited grape, red pulp. So um, it produces 
a very different kind of wine than you'd get from a red skin grape and you have to manage it differently. And what they did with this wine is they did a post fermentation maceration on it, which is a little counterintuitive because you would, you might think that that would extract a lot of alcohol. Um, when you, when you have a lot of alcohol, when actually there might, it would extract a lot of tannins They just all, all this alcohol in the, in the wine after the fermentation. So it's going to pull a lot of, a lot of the tannins out of the skins that are left. Um, but in fact, I think it helped to integrate this wine um, because it's really beautifully integrated. Now, before we taste it, Alicante Boucher, you mentioned to me off air, is a good varietal looking at climate change in front of you. Did you reference that? Did- People are experimenting with it in, in California. Um, and they've got a lot of experience. They've got a lot of experience with Alicante Boucher in California from the 19th century. Is the jury still out, or it seems? Well, I don't know that the jury's out on any of it. I think that um, too soon. The the climate is going to change in ways that we can't predict. Right. And um, I think that once the ocean currents shift, all bets are off in terms of what climate will be where. So we're used to. And that, that's what nobody's really talking about in terms of climate change is how the, you know, on the East Coast, the the, the um, current that comes up the East Coast is getting weaker. The current going down from, down the Atlantic and on, on the side of, of Europe is changing. Um, the currents are going to change in, as, as the polar ice caps melt, the currents are going to change in terms of their strength and their direction. Um, or could. So nobody really knows what's going to happen. And so is it the right grape? Who knows? Right. I think diversity is diversity is the key. More diversity than, and yeah. experimentation, mm-hmm. certainly. Um, all right. So let's, let's do a quick evaluation of this wine. It's a pretty deep, dark, brooding wine, right? Yes. As opposed to the wine we had before, yeah. this is completely opaque in the glass. Yeah. It's opaque. Um, let's go to the nose. Uh, dark fruits. Yes. I love the wine, this, the way this wine smells. Some people think that it's got a little bit of dried fruit, but I get, um, I get this very bright cherry character to it. Um, very lifted by the alcohol. Yes. But to me, the alcohol is beautifully integrated in this wine and I don't experience heat on the wine. There is no heat and there is an alcohol element to the nose that works well. Um, the mouthfeel is pretty big, right? It's a big wine, but it's not harsh. Mm-mm. That's one of the things that I really love about this wine is that it's so integrated. And so it, it um, it's mouthwatering. You know, with, with a lot of wines of this scale, they're not mouthwatering. And this wine actually makes my mouth water. When you say mouthwatering, does that point to being savory or not necessarily? Savory and fresh. Right. There is a freshness to mm-hmm. it. There's a teeny bit of reductive quality to mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, and I think this, you know, when you asked about whether Pais would be a wine to age, this is a wine to age. Right. I mean, these are, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to bring the Mushao was because that, that's a young vintage of Mushao. It's 2015. But I've had vintages of Mushao that are 40 or 50 years old that are absolutely gorgeous. And um, they, these, Alicante Boucher does, from this particular area of the world, it makes a great wine that ages. And it's counterintuitive because... In France, you know, the French got involved in this area. They bought a, par- a part of Carmo from Giulio Bastos. 
Um, and they did a partnership with, he did a partnership with Domaine Lafitte Rothschild um, in the late 80s. And they came in and they thought, hmm, this variety in France is garbage. So it couldn't be interesting here in Portugal. We don't understand why it's interesting here in Portugal. And they convinced him in the end to pull out his 120-year-old vines. Oh, boy. And it was, it's one of the great tragedies in Portugal. Yeah, I mean, it just, um, because these were, these were classic wines that he was making. And then they pulled out in the end, in, in the, in the, about 10 years later, or maybe a little longer actually than that. And then he ended up, pull, he ended up selling the project to um, Bacalhoa Group. So um, he no longer has the name Carmo, but he has his own vineyards, which are old. And he's got his own name, Donna Maria. But this is considered garbage in France. And in in California, it was considered a good grape for prohibition because right. you could ship it easily. And it was a good home winemaker grape. But nowhere in the world that I know of makes Alicante Boucher at this level. That's what I was going to say. This, so it has ageability, the quality is there. Um, so the grape has an ability to age if made properly. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's proven, I mean, you proven could, ability. Yeah. Yeah. You could see by, you know, the way it drinks and looks and mm -hmm. all of that. All right. So that's an interesting project. We're going to move to the Moncheo. Is that how you pronounce it? No, it's Mushao. 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 Mm -hmm. the, the wire is in front of mm -hmm. the uh, you. Mushao. M-O-U-C-H-A. A with the tilde. With oh. the tilde. Oh. Mm -hmm. Now, is the Re are the Reynolds British? Yes. Okay. Certainly not. And they still own, they've owned this property. They planted this property in the 18, in the 1800s and they still own the property. Right, and it, they actually lost the property to, um, during, right after the revolution in Portugal, there was a lot of communist activity in, you know, it went from being a fascist country to right. much more communist, much more left-wing. Right. And there was a lot of communist activity in the Alentejo and they took over a lot of the old haciendas, including um, Mushao. And they didn't, their grapes, their really old vines did not survive that. Um, but they have old vines still. They have some old vines still that are about, I think it's about 60 or 70 years old. Um, and it's still the same property. So this is more, this is more central. It's not as far north as, um, as, as Fonsoto. Yeah. The Symington. Mm -hmm. So a couple things. The Symington was a 2018. Mm -hmm. The Mouchao is a 2015. Mm -hmm. um, are those a couple of back vintages or typically? No, these are current releases. Okay. So why are they current releases? They keep them in the bottle or barrel in both? So the, the Mouchao is made in um, big vats, very large vats. And it's Portuguese oak. Um Macacauba and mahogany. What's Macacauba? It is a Brazilian wood that's a kind of a, a rare Brazilian wood. Where they make vessels to store? Yeah, they, they well they, they they store these in in those three the 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 varieties of wood used to make these big bats are those three varieties of wood. Um and so it's not in small barrel. Um and then they put it into bottle for a while. So it's been aged in bats for several years and then in bottle for seven years before it's released. Um, they don't sell a lot of it. So it's not like, I mean, we had tasted the 2013 most recently 
and now the 2015 is the current release. Um, Jeez. And it also, it needs time. So this wine is a baby at, you know, at eight years old, it's still a baby. So 2013, it's in the market now, you open it. When would be a good window for this? Wait another three, four years? I opened a bottle of their 87 Dom Raphael, which is their second wine and considered the, the secondary production. I opened that about five years ago and it was in prime condition. Really? So that would have been what? Um, probably a 30 year old wine. Is that right? Or a little under. Yeah. 27, 20. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right there. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, and that's their second wine. So these wines live to be right. 40, 50 years old, no problem. All right. So let's. Uh, Let's taste this, and we'll talk about it more. Again, the color, mm -hmm. you know, really dark, deep purple, yeah. dark, mm -hmm. brooding on the nose. Um, this one's a little more floral to me. A, a little, little more, more floral, a little more bright a little less red. of that mm -hmm. alcohol, mm -hmm. but not stating that in a negative way. It's mm -hmm. just not an aspect of this mm -hmm. nose. And this also has some trincadera in it. So I think that's what's driving some of the floral aspects of it. And that what red and the red fruit. Do you think? I think it's about 15%. Okay. Not much, but I think it's about 15%. All right. Let's give it a, let's throw it over the tongue. This seems the profiles of the alcohol and the tannins mm -hmm. seem smoother or lighter on this. I never get those descriptors right. What would you um, say? I find the tannin grippier and a little harder, actually. Do you? Yeah. I find the tannin more integrated in the um, in the. To me, more integrated. But and, and integrated here, to me before grippier. Okay. But I'm not arguing with you. Mm -hmm. No, I just, I find that, well, I find the tannin, I, I prefer the tannic expression in the Mouchao. I think it's more, more detailed, but I definitely get more presence of tannin in it. They're less smooth. For me, they're less smooth. They're, they're more detailed and they're more, I don't find them aggressive. No. But I find them harder edged and- But in a more good way. Yeah, yeah, not in a bad way at all. And then the palette, what do you pick up on the palette? And then I want to talk about the difference between this and the Symington. The palette on this wine. I think it's shut down. I mean, for you me, do? and it's been open, this wine has been open for a day and I think it's still shut down. I, I mean, to me- Was it shut down when you initially tasted it? Yep. Okay. And- um. I get more upfront on this wine and then I don't, and then I, then to me it goes into the tannins and I, and I get the flavor of the tannins more than the flavor of the fruit. So I get the scent of the fruit on it, but I don't get as much, I get some red fruit on the palate, but not at the level that I think I will 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Interesting. Um, the mouthfeel is, you know, it's a nice full mouthfeel, medium plus. Now between the two wines, is one more distinctive than the other for the things we just discussed or other things? Well, I think that one is more approachable than the other. I would say that the Symington wine is more approachable and is a wine that I would more happily drink right now than the Mushao wine, which I think is very, very young and harder and has more, I don't get the mouthwatering quality on the Mushao that I think I will when it's 20 years old. Um, not to ask, for you to pick your favorite kid but when both of these wines are flying mm -hmm. they have their own traits mm -hmm. um is one a better wine than the other or that's not even the right question 
I don't know how I would say that one is better than the other. They're very different, different. wines. And I think that- That's what I want to hear. I think that it's, for me, it's fascinating that this variety, it's not so far apart. I mean, one is in the hills, one is on the plain, you know, or in on rolling hills. Um, and one, this, the Mushao is on more alluvial soils and, and um, red loam. And the, um, the Symington wine, Fonsuoto, is, um, is going to be in that, I think it's more, I, I don't want to say because I'm not sure exactly what the soil is there. But it's um, it's a very different, probably rockier soil. I know that other parts of Port Lager are very, very rocky, um, and it's a completely different expression. You know, it's yeah. high, high. That's a higher altitude wine, so you get the, that freshness. It's actually and, a silly question comparing yeah. the two. But but I think it's interesting to compare the two because they're no, no, they, no. because they are so different. I yeah. didn't mean comparing. I mean, is one better than the other? I think comparing is great um, in that sense. Um, as far as Alentejo climate change effects, I mean, it's a hot region. Are they, you know, confronted with any challenges? Have they, they haven't seen fires like Europe, Napa or Chile even? Well, a lot of Portugal has been on fire for several vintages. Yeah. yeah. So they've had really terrible fires in Portugal. Um, I don't know if Alentejo has had as much fire as some of the other regions. Um, but the... The fact that it's always been a very hot, dry region is going in its favor because their their vines are accustomed to that. Um, they also, in two thousand two, I think it was, completed this vast dam project. So it's the biggest dam in the south. It's the biggest dam in Western Europe and the biggest lake handmade lake in Western Europe, Alcaiva, um, and. In Alentejo? In Alentejo, yeah. I think we were at a high point and, you know, it's not hard to miss. Mm -hmm. If you were down by like Regengos to Montserrat, um, that area is right by the by the um, lake. Okay. And, you know, in, sort of in the central, I think that's probably where you were when you were at that hacienda yeah. um, in that area. I think so. But they, so that gives them lots of water if they need to irrigate. Lucky um, for them. Um, so... When we were talking about Chile, you know, it's been tough to get some of the wines into mm -hmm. the States for various reasons, which we discussed. Is Alentejo going to fall prey to those same problems or they've been here a little longer and they're coming in easier? Because the wines are wonderful and we want people to drink them. I think it depends on um, the, pro the wine itself, the specific product, and it depends on the um, welcoming of the market for a small artisan producer. So we tried to get a wine that, I, I wanted to show some people this wine called Estremis, which is um, grown in rocky marble right outside of Estremos, outside the Estremos wall. Um, and we couldn't, it's not, in this it's not in this country. And it's a very, it's the best wine that Joao Portugal Ramos makes. He makes a lot of different wines. A lot of his wines are in the country. That one is not. Um, Mushao was not in the country on and off for a long time. Now it's in the country. It just moved to a new distributor. Um, and so it may get more focus and attention. Um, the Symingtons have their own importer. You know, they have they, a they self import. Sway, so they cloud have exactly. connections. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, Which it would is be, good too. because Oh, absolutely. If they're making good the wine. Varietal, yeah. The region, you know, they'll help yeah. promote that. No and, question. And like you said, they're making good wine, which is, you know, obviously why you select it as one of them. Mm -hmm. 
This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old-world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. All right, so let me just recap. We tasted the 2015 Mouchal from Alentejo, uh, Alicante, Alicante Boucher, and we tasted the Symington Quintada Fonte Suto Alicante Boucher. That is a 2018, and Josh mentioned that these are basically the current vintages, so there are some very interesting wines. Um, it's nice to talk about Portugal with you and to delve into not a new region, but a region that deserves, you know, some nice attention. All right. We're going to move along to our, um, fourth wine. We're coming to the United States. We are going to taste the 2019 Aris. It's got a long name. California Centennial Mountain Vineyard. Brico Rosso. Um, wine and spirits gave it a 93. It's a $60 wine, so not off the charts, but not, you know, a cheap wine. Um, Josh, you selected this for a lot of reasons, but let me just give you the setup. Eris is a project of the Reese people, R-H-Y-S, who make incredible pinots and shards. Um, and they're based in Santa, Santa um Cruz Mountains. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the great winemakers in that region, mm-hmm. not tons of them. Um, and here's where I want you to take the ball and run. Uh, I mean, this is Nebbiolo. Well, this is, this is a this is a blend of varieties actually. Right. But yeah. there's Nebbiolo in here. I think there's, um, let me see what's in this. It's four varieties and it is, um, No, this one. This, this is not the Nebbiolo one. No, the oh, okay. So I brought I brought the other wine. I, oh, they, you didn't bring the Brico Rosso. No, they they sent Centenari. Okay, All right, interesting. So, so, so this you is, have to admit one thing. I'm not oh, crazy. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So let's. So one of the things we I discussed pulled the wrong was wine. Yeah. we we were going to do a Brico Rosso, which was an interesting Nebbiolo project in California. You know, with the Aris Reese people. Let's put that aside. Let now let's move forward. So this is their project, okay. but this is their project in Etna Rosso. So this is their project ah. in Etna. So basically, they had planted. I wanted to show you the Norella Mascalese wine that they were making in Sonoma, but. I think that they must have they must have sent me a bottle of this that I didn't I didn't see that it was a different bottle until now. And Josh, so this is I their don't know if Centenari. you're getting old or you're distracted. I'm distracted. Less I'm old. I'm old and I'm distracted. <laughs> um, 
Can I tell you an interesting thing? I've mm -hmm. been on the Reese mailing list 20 years, mm -hmm. you know, and they have all kinds of projects. Um, so when Eris came out, I think the first wines they offered were Nantana Rosso, mm -hmm. you know, and then they started doing Sonoma projects and all that. Um, so they've been at this for a few years, as mm -hmm. far as I could see. Yeah, they're so, working. They're working with Sylvia Foto Foti, um, right. in who's based in um, in Etna. But let me pour this for you. All right. So to set up this wine. So once again, read off the bottle exactly. You know what it is. Ooh, that's interesting. So this is their Centenari. It's an Etna Rosso from Sicily, two thousand nineteen. And it is a hundred-year-old Norello Mascalese, um, and it's growing in the in their Monte LaGuardia estate um, on the northern slope of Sicily's Mount Etna. So, so is it all Norello Mascalese? This is one hundred percent Norello okay. Mascalese, mm -hmm. and it's older vines, obviously hundred-year-old vines. Yeah. All right. So just quickly talk about. Sicily in the sense of the varietal in this wine. Yeah, so the reason I wanted to bring the Sonoma County wine is that it was really interesting to me that they are planting Norella Mascalese in Sonoma, and as well as Nebbiolo, but I'm more interested in the fact that they're planting Norella Mascalese right. because I think it's, an, it's a fascinating um, climate change question. You know, is this kind of, is this, wine, is this particular grape suitable for the climate and and the coming climate in Sonoma if you have a very high elevation vineyard um, in the hills of Sonoma County? Is Sonoma cooler than Napa? Parts of it are. Okay. Um, you know, Napa... Napa is cool in places and hot in other places. Right. You know, so, so that's... Yeah, so same if thing you have... With Sonoma. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because how would you describe the climate in uh, Sicily, in Etna? I would describe it as, well, I mean, the, the northern slope is going to be cooler than the southern slope. Um, but I would describe it as a, an arid, um, I, I don't know enough about, I, Etna is not my region. Right. But I, my impression is that it's arid and hot. And volcanic soils. Yeah, volcanic soils. You know, yeah. famous mm -hmm. for being a volcanic mm -hmm. area and all that. All right. So this is a project by a wonderful winery. Jeff Brinkman makes, well, Jeff Brinkman makes the wine in California. I is imagine. Jeff Brinkman the Reese winemaker? Yes. Or, okay. Yeah. So and he's I, doing the Aris project. Yep. And, he's, and I imagine that Foti makes the wine, Foti makes this wine. I'm sure uh, Brinkman gets on a plane and plays around with them a little every now mm -hmm. and then. All right, so let's talk about this wine. Um, nice purple, a little more translucent, but, mm -hmm. you know, nice, pretty deep translucent purple. Um, I think this is more delicate than the California wine I was going to bring, which I, is richer. I would guess. Mm -hmm. Yep. I would guess. It's, you know, it's almost like one of the richer Pinot Noir colors. Mm -hmm. um, how about on the nose? Different nose than anything we've tasted. Very mushroomy to me. Is it earthy yeah. and mushroomy mm -hmm. to you? Any and a lot of dark there? fruit. A lot of dark fruit. More like um, it's not to prune, but it's it's very ripe and dark. On the palate, it's ripe. Yep. The mouthfeel is a medium mouthfeel. Yeah, medium to light. 
You, I mean, you know what I love? I, I suck at descriptors. Mm-hmm. And when you say mushroomy and then you spend a few seconds, it's mushroomy. Yeah, and it's you know, so suggestive. I sit suggestive. there and I go, this is different. What is mm-hmm. that? And mushroom's mm-hmm. not running through my head. And But it's really suggestive. And I think that part of it is like, if you can suggest something that's close, then other people might say, oh yeah, I see that. But you can also suggest, suggest things that are I mean, I often suggest things that are far off base for other people. And but also say, I don't so general, like mineral or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, mushroomy is a little more, you know, in the zone as far mm-hmm. as the description and all that. All right, what about on the palate? There's a savory quality to it. It's definitely savory. And volcanic wines definitely have a, um, a textural aspect to the tannins it's different from most other wines explain that explain what that means and why is it the volcanic soil is it the uh climate um i'm sure the climate has something to do with it i think that the soil um volcanic soils would probably feed the vines in a certain way that other soils don't um so you're getting certain nutrients and not other nutrients in a volcanic soil um and I don't know enough about plant physiology to be able to say why volcanic soils would give me this impression of a, um, a very dry tannin, a very austere tannin. Um, but I tend to get that if I taste a Canary Islands wine, right? if I taste an Etna wine, I like that austerity. Yeah. Um, to me, it, it's, a, it's a particular kind of structural aspect that I associate with Volcanic wines, especially volcanic island wines. So one of the interesting things about this wine is that, like I said earlier, it's it's a cool winemaker, Reese, that mm-hmm. started a project and really literally went out of their regional zone. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't yeah. say comfort zone. No, their comfort zone, definitely, yeah. Probably. I mean, they started it for well, Nebbiolo and then they ended up, looking at Enrella Mascalesi as well. So are they doing anything in the Piedmont area with Nebbiolo as they're doing in Etna? I think that they are. Okay. They have a a winemaker. They're working with a winemaker from Piedmont. Um, Let me just check to see who that is. Because I'm pretty sure they're working with a winemaker from Piedmont as well. Josh, do we know the proximate retail value? Gianpiero Romano. Romana from Piedmont to plant Nebbiolo. Okay. Um, So do I know the, I don't know because I didn't intend to bring this particular wine. Threw us a ringer. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's the, uh, the Eris, uh, Nero, Mescalese, um, Etna. What's the vintage here, Josh? 2019. All right. Anything else we want to say on that? I think it's it's more delicate than most of the Norella Mascalese that I take that I tend to taste. Um, I think it's rather beautiful, but it's a very delicate wine. Yeah. What about this argument? There are so many good producers in uh, Sicily and mm-hmm. Etna. Why should I drink this? It's a good question. Um, I think I think it's a beautiful Bunch of wine. California guys that. Well, this is, I think, I mean, Foti is not Californian. He's right. from Etna. So, so that, that's part one of the answer. Mm-hmm. They went over there with a guy who knows the area. 
I think that if you are, first of all, you've got very old vines. So, um, and you've got, you've got other Americans working over there. Um, Market Grazia, you know, you, you got people working over there. It's been who, there for yeah, years. Mark. Yeah. Um, I think all the boxes are checked. The varietal, mm-hmm. um, the vineyards, hundred year old vines, the winemaker, I think, um, Eris and Reese sort of have great chops. Absolutely. You know, and I, and I also think that if you are tasting their wine that I was intending to bring their blend, um, their Brico Rosso, that this would be an interesting corollary to it. Right. Which is probably why they sent it to me. They're probably the other bottle, the Brico Rosso bottle is probably in my office still sitting in the, in the box that they sent. Well, here's what I want you to do. When are you coming back from Vienna? On the 13th. All right. When you, well, when you come back, I want you to, if you can taste that wine and just give me a paragraph mm-hmm. between the uh, two wines, because mm-hmm. I think in our postings, we'll mention that. Okay. Um, it would be interesting because your mind was set on that. We did this. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting, you know, sure. change and mm-hmm. all that. Let's see what happens. All right. So those are our four wines. Um, a few things. I will post all the wines that we tasted um, down to the specifics. And I hope you'll drink them later on because they're all, all four of these are going to get better by tonight or no tomorrow. Kidding. Yeah. Um, all right. So I will post the wines. Um, Josh selected those wines um for 2023 because those were significant to him i just wanted to ask you a few more questions i know you spent a decent amount of time in austria Mm -hmm. um tasting and talking about blaufrankisch i'm surprised that didn't come up in this mix i thought about bringing it but that was last year that i was there that was in december of last year that was was the end of last year i think that the um I was just about to leave for that, that trip. That was after yeah. mm-hmm. we yeah. talked. Exactly. But there's been some good um, tailwinds on Blau Frankish, right? I yeah. mean, it's it's definitely something to pay attention to. It's it's very, I, I think that for me, it is expressing a Central European gestalt or like mind, um, mindset or, or um, way of, it, it expresses the Central European character that we don't necessarily think about with red wine. We think about Central Europe for white wine, for Riesling, um, and for Gruner Beltliner. And um, but it it has a depth of it has a soulful depth that is un, I find absolutely f- fascinating. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, when you good Olga and Wassenhaus mm-hmm. and all these mm-hmm. producers making these, I I was at a Blau Frankish uh, masterclass less than a mm-hmm. month ago, and we must have tasted 40 wines. I mean, the diversity, the regions was incredible. Yeah, I mean, I, we had a wine from Dorley Muir last weekend um, from Carnuntum. Most most of the Balfrankish is from Bergenland, um, which is the area just east of um, Vienna and east and south. By from, that lake, right? Um, well, it's, it's all along the border of Hungary. And then Carnuntum is along the Danube right. to the north. Um, and just, it's basically east of Vienna, north of Bergenland. Um, and her Reed Spitzerberg, beautiful wines from Reed Spitzerberg. Um, and some of the wines from, um, from Lotzmannberg and from, um, further south, um, that Wachler Wiesler's making or, um, they're, they're, they're insanely great wines and yeah. they're, and they're again, undervalued for what they are. 
I, I agree with that. So staying on that topic, when we look at 2024, mm-hmm. um, what's on your schedule? What's on your plans? Do you have trips? Pl- like we said, you were in Austria mm-hmm. this time last year, a couple mm-hmm. of weeks later. Um, are there places you're going that are scheduled? Are there places you want to be going back to to check back new places? I'm definitely headed to Austria today. Okay, <laughs> so, we know that. And I'm I'm exploring old vines in Wachau and Kramp- and Kamtal, um, and how they are surviving through climate change. So um, that's my research project for this week. Um, after that, I really want to get back to Champagne. I need to get back to Bordeaux. I need to get back to Portugal again. I was there in in September, but I want to go to some other regions again. I want to get back to Chile again. Um, you know, so there, there's lots of places I need to get so back to. Let me fixate on Champagne and Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. Um, when was the last time you were in Champagne? Oof, maybe two or three years. Okay. Yeah. And when you go there now, mm-hmm. are there things that you're looking for? Are there producers I would, or I would regions? Go, Everything is really Yeah, I would I would go with a specific project in mind, and I think I would probably go to the Obe. Okay. Um, because I'm not A-U-B-E, into the OBE, yeah. the OBE, and talk to winemakers there. Now, Bordeaux has been such an up and down story. I mean, you know, legendary before Burgundy. Burgundy's hot. Uh, Bordeaux, huge, great value. What's mm-hmm. what's the story or your interest in Bordeaux? Well, I don't really want to talk about the story that I'm doing, but um, <laughs> I mean, there is beat there, it out of you. There is a story there about um, you know, it's the same kind of story that is going on in Napa Valley, that people talk about bringing in all these new varieties. And some of the varieties that are there and you know, extant there are actually performing well through climate change. So um, people don't think that Merlot has a lot of um, chops for climate change, and it might, in fact, perform oh, wow. very well in climate change. So, it, I mean, in the same thing at Cabernet Sauvignon, when people talk about replanting Napa Valley with other grapes, there's, um, there's a story in our current issue that Steve Mathiasen is, is quoted as saying, well, you know, Napa Valley is very different from north to south, and there are parts of Napa Valley that are still too cool for Cabernet Sauvignon. So that's and, interesting. And you can and you can plant the vines, you can tend the vines, you can you can um, create a different direction for the rows, and you can create different trellising systems to prevent too much. That's heat. interesting. Yeah. That's the discussion now yeah. out of necessity. Like, is Coombsville cooler? Very cool. And is Carneros cooler? Yeah, Carneros and is, I mean, you don't see a lot of Cabernet for in red Carneros. wines. Yeah. Right. But so you see things, some great Cabernets in, in Carneros and you see some great Cabernets right. in Coombsville. I know I had Paul Hobbs on. He makes, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of wines in Coombsville. All right. Um, so we'll look forward to that. I can't let you leave without doing our wine list, this will be the seventh one. Um, at some point I have to compare. Okay. Um, five questions, same five questions I asked you the six previous times, same five questions I've asked my other 265 other show guests. Don't dwell on them. Let's go quick. What are you drinking now? What are you drinking personally you know, what are you curious about at home? Do the seasons change? What's in your fridge? What are you forced to drink for work? What am I drinking now is Pais. Pais. Yep. Okay. And, and for every reason that, that we, we discussed, about. it's yep. delicious. No, honestly, it's, honestly, it's what I'm drinking. You said you want yep. to buy cases to have yeah. enough. Okay. No, I'm going to. Yeah. So Pais and Sinso. All right. 
favorite wine and food pairing? Dumbest question on the list. Can't take it off. I wonder if it's the same. It's not what you think is good. It's what you like. Like what works every time. And you don't eat it every week, every, you know, month. That's a really that's a really tough question to answer. Um, I, I have just think, to look at your past answers. Well, I, I I would think about the duck that um my friend roasted for um, she's chef Amy Amy Loveless. She roasted a a, a couple ducks for Thanksgiving. Is Amy and, the restaurant owner? No, no. Who's she, the woman who moved from the Upper East Side to Tribeca? Oh no, that that's Tina Vaughn. Tina. Yeah. Okay, so Amy made duck. Mm-hmm. And I think of the Blaufrankisch that we had with the duck that was All really right. beautiful. There, yeah. There's an updated contemporary okay. wine and food. So duck and Blaufrankisch. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why does that work? Duck is a little darker, fattier. Mm-hmm. Blaufrankisch works with that. Why? Um, I think that, it, you know, I mean, I think that you could do a lot of different wines with duck um, that have good acidity, have good freshness, and are... Um, you know, the acidity will cut through the fatty, fattiness of the duck. You know, we had a um, Geyserville from Ridge with it that was delicious. Works. Um, Perfect. So, yeah. All right. Third question. Don't forget I've asked you these questions before. Favorite wine restaurant and or bar? Well, there I, w- there I would go with Ulele, which is Tina Vaughn's new place. Right. Yeah. And I ask you this not to leave people out or rate them. Like, Josh, you know, you run a magazine mm-hmm. why are you picking places that's not um, it's about yeah. who does it right I, I i mentioned tina because um you don't even need to look at her wine list she'll just choose wines for you that she has worked with with the food that her husband chip produces and her sensibility around wine and food pairing is astonishing how long has she been down in tribeca not long i think they opened this fall Oh, so yeah. pretty recently. Mm-hmm. I was going to say six, seven months. But no, maybe they, that they were they were doing kind of construction over the summer, and I went there for a construction dinner over the summer. <laughs> um, but then I've been there in in the fall since they've been open, nice. and it's very beautiful. I got, I was at a um, La Macchioli tasting with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was sitting next to her, and mm-hmm. she was getting things going. Then, um, all right, fourth question. Favorite all-time wine question originally, and you were subject to this because this is your seventh show. When I asked you the question initially, I'm like, Josh, you're like the editor, publisher of a wine magazine. You've had access to what's the most expensive rare wine you ever tasted. That's not the question anymore. The question is, and now it's more interesting to comparison to your last few years, what's the wine that influenced you that was a gateway, that was transcendent, that was memorable? You know, it didn't have to be rare or expensive. It just had to be important. Probably the wine, I would say one of the wines that influenced me the most is, is that Chambo Musini from the 80s. From Rumier? From Rumier, yeah. I think that when I, when I think about wines that I covet, I covet his village wine from Chambo Musini. Um, and I mean, I covered a lot of wines, but he's a great winemaker. It's gotten expensive, because, but it's still because cool. he's a great grower. Um, and farmer. I mean, yeah, he's a farmer and he's a really, he's a really brilliant farmer and he's a very intuitive farmer. And, um, and he, he grew up that way and he always has been. And, and he, you know, now it's kind of ridiculous to say, but I think that he is, he, he brought his family's wines to a level 
that's astonishing, you know, that people now are sure. paying fortunes for those wines. Sadly. Yeah. You know, Rumier is at the top of the discussion in the mm -hmm. mix of, you know, the best wines in Burgundy. Um, all right, last question. Nobody better than you to answer this. You've devoted your life to uh, sort of solving these type of questions. The question is, best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks, a red and a white. I always said you can go category, like Muscadet is a pretty good value for white if you get the right producer. Where do, where do you see that? I'm going to guess in the past you've said Portugal. You know. Well, for white wine, I mean, I just drink Vigneur Verde. I love Vigneur Verde. So and Vigneur Verde is getting better and better. Yeah. So that's our white wine. Yeah. Is there a producer or two that... There are plenty. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, there's, there's so much good, good category. Yeah. It's, um, and it's, it's, it's really hard to go bad. You can, you can buy really cheap wines. You can buy $25 wine. Soliero to me is the, is the benchmark wine. Which one? Soliero. Spell. S-O-A-L-H-E-R-A-H-E-R-O. Soliero. Yeah. Wow. I, I would have had to Google that like 90 times if I didn't ask you. Um, and um, the Sidero family has this vineyard and, they, and they're just doing astonishing things there now. I was there in September and Luis is, is brilliant and he's got a really great team. So that's why I ask these questions because that recommendation from you is an important one to a lot yeah, of Yeah, but there's Anselmo Mendes who makes amazing wines. No, no, I, that's you know, why I disclaimed yeah. it by yeah. saying it's not number one, it's not mm -hmm. the only, it's just a suggestion mm -hmm. that's on your radar, mm -hmm. you know, fairly. Um, how about a red? Well, as I say, the reds I'm drinking are Pais and Senso from, from Itata. So, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm I honor record. that answer. I'm a broken record, sorry. Because Isabel Legero gave me the same answer for red wines, that you should go to uh, Chile and Male mm -hmm. and Pais and all of that. So we'll take that. All right, Josh, I thank you for our seventh year. This is kind of special. Not Thank a lot you, Sam. Of, not a lot of people could say, you know, they get together and have this discussion this many times. So I appreciate you doing this. I appreciated it from day one. I appreciate that you still do it. Um, I appreciate your selection of the wines. Um, so thank you for that. Let me do a quick wrap up. I'll get some info from you and then we're out of here. Josh is on his way to Vienna. I'm on my way to Jersey. Who's got the better trip? Um, all right. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your uh, pods. Leave a review if you like the podcast. Follow us on Instagram at sbenruby and on Twitter at benruby. I know they're different, but you can always follow, find us on uh uh, both if you use the hashtag the grape nation we're on facebook at the grape nation as i mentioned we will post josh's wine list answers which we just did and as i mentioned earlier we will post the wines that we tasted because these were interesting curated meaningful wines um, for discussion and tasting um, josh a couple things if we want to find out more information or access Wine and Spirits magazine, 
maybe subscribe or go there for information. Where do we go? You go to wineandspiritsmagazine.com or you can come to our event in New York on February 15th at the Metropolitan Pavilion where we will be pouring our top 100 wine wineries of the year. So that's coming up in February. God, I didn't realize. You know what? I haven't seen much social media on that. I no, guess. it's just we're just announcing it okay. now. Yeah. All right. So I've been to a bunch of those and this is a wine tasting, a walk around wine tasting of the most highly curated wines. This is literally Josh and his people after tasting thousands and thousands of wines, inviting winemakers for whatever reason. And we're not going to get into that. Come to our tasting in February and please pour your wine. So it's very special. Are you still doing it in San Francisco too? We did it in San Francisco in October. Okay. So and this it was a beautiful event in okay. San Francisco. And then we're doing it in New York in February. All right. So do you have the exact date? February 15th. February at, yeah. 15th. Wine and Spirits. When you look at it, it's and is spelled out, right? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's spirit. Wine is singular and spirits is plural and magazine is all spelled out. Okay. And social media, Wine and Spirits. I think it's just at Wine and Spirits, yep. mm -hmm. Twitter and Instagram. Mm -hmm. yep. mm -hmm. um, are you posting with any regularity there? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So um, Su Susanna Smith manages our social media and she is posting a lot. You know, if you've been around long enough, Josh and I used to fight about this. I would say, Josh, you need to get your social media game up a little more. And he was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. But this is five, seven years ago. Now you're there. Good for <laughs> you. You got somebody there. All right. I want to thank my guest, Josh Green. Um, I've thrown all the praise at him already and thankful uh, to call him a friend and thankful that he comes here every year. I want to thank our engineer, Armin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.